Welcome to Self-Help is Bad for You, where you get dumbed-down life advice from a Buddhist brat who barely understands himself, let alone you. Over-promising and under-delivering with occasional interviews with amazing guests and friends of Elephant Journal. I'll discuss everything from President Trump to zero waste, factory farming to wellness tips and recipes, how to write a book, spiritual materialism, why positivity sucks, meditation, community and local food, dating, commitment, love, and loneliness. Each week, we'll meditate together, and I'll share one mindful lesson for your everyday life based on my Buddhist upbringing in a windowless basement in Yonkers. New episode every week. ElephantJournal.com slash podcast to subscribe to iTunes, Google Play, TuneIn, Stitcher, or SoundCloud, or my YouTube channel. May it be of benefit. So I hope everyone's super well. Uh, we're here on a kind of cool Haligonian, which is a fancy word for Halifaxian, uh, summer's day. Yeah. Yeah, cool for you. It's it's still summer for me. Oh, it's cold for me. I'm in a sweatshirt. Um, I'm in my New York Times sweatshirt supporting journalism, which is a dying breed. Um, you? Yeah. So speaking of dying breeds, I'm here with one of the original. Sometimes you all get <laughs> called old dogs. Yeah. Um, still who, kicking. Yeah, kicking very well. Well, thank you for being here. Sorry for drafting you, but you're always fun to talk with, and people always love our conversations because you're so cute. So, when did you discover Buddhism? Um, I think I always had a longing for something, and I didn't know what the longing was. And uh, in the late 60s, there wasn't much Buddha Dharma available uh, when I found myself in Seattle. That's a great point. Can I just touch on yeah. that? So just as recently as the late 60s the west and the east were still quite separate there was like one or two buddhist books i remember there was some buddhist bible book you remember that yeah written by some western guy and there was uh, dt suzuki right. but i i hadn't encountered him actually right. and uh, i love the poetry of philip whalen and gary snyder who went to reed university and Portland, mm. and there was little phrases in their poetry that smacked of the Buddha Dharma because they were Zen students. And you lived out there. And I lived in the Northwest. Yeah. Um, so you could say there were little glimpses of a different way to view life and whatever is truly real. Um, but I had this longing that, in, you know, and so that only increased my longing. And uh, you're longing about what? I didn't know, but, but it not longing in the relationship sense. Oh no, I mean, yeah, sure, I, you know. But the way you're using is longing but I'm for talking some about sort of truth, it, it, or yeah, yeah. And um, uh, so I was getting onto a ferry boat to go to Bainbridge Island from Seattle, and I encountered "Born in Tibet," which is I, a book. A, Book written by Trump Rinpoche. It was a penguin classic, and it was right there in the ferry terminal because the old ferries wow. took a long time to cross the harbor. I don't think old ferries is the politically correct term anymore. <laughs> this but. was a wooden boat. Okay. We're talking. Yeah. Um, and also, a friend who had just come back from India um, with whom I'd been in a co op soup and salad manufacturing company in the um, Pike Place 
farmer's market and so forth. I cool. just come back from India and gave me Meditation and Action, which I love. Another book, and that's by, by Trump Rinpoche. I love this book. It's a little tiny book. Yeah. It just packed a wall of it. It was what I was longing for. Huh. But What about it? It, well, he starts off with talking about the manure of experience, how it was a very non-dualistic approach. So it wasn't that you had to reject certain things in your life that were bad, uh, but that you could use that to grow a field of Bodhi, as he put it, a field of wakefulness. So I, I found it was like you could actually appreciate the hard times you had as a child, the difficulties that you had, you know, in high school that everyone has, no corner on the market there. And it was it was just very helpful. And you'd had a hard time, like your wonderful mom had died of cancer, lung cancer, despite never having smoked at all. She was a Christian scientist. Right. She died at 42. Right. And my mom went from this kind of not perfect still, dad was kind of intense and not very friendly yeah didn't really know your dad to you only met your dad once right yeah um to uh it was almost like at a disney like your evil aunt came <laughs> yeah and like <laughs> sold the house your mom was exactly. died sold your children's books and suddenly you were like homeless Everything. at 16. yeah exactly and you had to pay for yourself to get through college and you were having affairs with your like whoever professor who wore tweed. And, when I was a senior, okay, a didn't just later, write not sixteen. I, you know, because when you're you're sixteen and the ground has been pulled out from under you, you sort of don't want to make any casual false moves. So I waited. Were, yeah, waiting tables. Yeah, putting the tips in my boots. Really? Yeah. Why? Oh, the cash. But, yeah, because. You know, it was the handiest thing, and then I'd go home and dump the change out on my bed and count it. And yeah. you just went back to Portland and Seattle just recently, right? Yes. And I hadn't seen some of my friends for 40 years. And one of the places you were waiting tables was still there, right? Yeah, the cheerful the cheerful tortoise in Portland, Oregon. Yeah. yeah is it was, any good? Uh, I don't know how it is now, yeah. and I think it's better... I heard that it was better than it was when I worked there. Oh. And the stone balloon doesn't exist anymore, but in that that bar, so this was after college, I was working in Portland, and the stone balloon was where I actually watched the the uh, first man walk on the moon. Wow. Because I didn't have a television, so I wouldn't have seen it if I wasn't bar mating. Wow. Yeah. That's wild. Yeah. So, yeah, what an intense time. Vietnam, walking on the moon, lost your whole family, and you know, middle-class life or whatever? I'd be, I had lived, you know, my mom worked really hard. At that point, We the first seven years of my life, you could say we were relatively poor. I, I was pretty much raised by my grandmother, who was wonderful. Right. And, and I loved my mother, and my mother loved me. Uh, but she worked really hard. She worked for Ginger Rogers for 11 years and uh, as secretary. And then she was she, her personal secretary. So, yeah. like, our scrapbooks are full of photos of, my beautiful grandma, who I never met, uh, who looked like, uh, and I don't mean this disrespectfully, but she looked like a poor woman's uh, Rita Hayworth. Yeah. Like that beautiful red hair. Beautiful and just beautiful. Yeah. And they're like snazzy dressers. Cooking hot dogs over campfires, camping, and yeah. in, or, pretending in a farm. Because Ginger had a farm in uh, the town, and I just blanked it out. Um, it's, it's just over the border into Oregon. Mm -hmm. And it's where the Shakespeare plays happen. Oh, Ashland. Ashland, Ashland, Oregon. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. They had a. She had a farm there. So, um, 
she went there once with my mother for a photo shoot um, to show how they were roughing it, but of course they didn't actually right. sleep right. outside. It's like for so a magazine or something. Yeah. So Ginger Rogers of Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers fame, yeah. pretty cool. So you lost all that. Suddenly you're 16, you're waiting tables, you're going to college at that point? Or yeah, no? I'm going to college. And then you, when did you run off into, the, we're totally getting off subject, but my mom's life is so... Crazy. Interesting, yeah. So you ran off with some, you know what I'm asking yeah, about. Yeah, I know. And, and so what so, was that? So um, I had started grad school at uh, the University of Washington, which wasn't as friendly a campus as the University of Oregon. Um, and I would go for a term, and then I'd go on leave for a year. And then I'd go on for a term, and I'd go on leave for a year. I did that too. That's funny. Yeah, which I think is very sane, actually. Hmm. Um, but so at one point, uh, I finished the fall term, and it was the year that the space needle froze. And uh, what do you mean it froze? It nothing moved. Like it couldn't turn. Yeah, nothing. Nothing couldn't turn. Okay. Then the monorail that had been built for the World Fair, you know, was frozen and didn't work. And Seattle is like a northern San Francisco with these hills and uh, steep hills, really quite steep places. And the buses weren't able to run, and the taxi. No one was prepared for this kind of weather. And I was walking along um, the icy, snowy, slippery sidewalks of Seattle, and I saw in the window of what turned out to be a store that sold TVs and radios and things. Um, not at all like a modern store, just might have even been secondhand TVs or whatever. Uh -huh. But one of the TVs was on, it was black and white, and it looked to me like, oh, there's my oh, my professor that I've had an affair with, um, Edward Van Alstyne. Uh -huh. uh, Don't out him. Oh, my God. No, no, he's long gone. Oh, okay. Um, but anyway, he was a dear friend. And and I, I, I was leaning into it when the image went away and out the door came the person who turned out that I had red beard, red hair, and his name was Mal Kelsey. And uh, it wasn't Van Alstyne. Uh, when I could see him in color, mm -hmm. and um, we 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 hit up a conversation. He, he, I guess he noticed that I was looking at this television. Anyway, make a long story short, um, it turned out that his he was the manager for the James Brothers Circus, and his bareback rider had gotten pregnant and couldn't do the tricks on the four white horses. Who, which weren't actually completely all white. You had to shoe polish their nose and their heels and so forth. Um, and he That's asked, such a classic circus thing. You had to like paint the horses yeah, white. Yeah, it was shoe polish. Yeah. And uh, um, and he asked if I rode, and of course I loved to ride. I always loved horses. And then he said, "How would I feel about riding an elephant as well?" And I said, "Sure." And I mean, it certainly be studying with my feet in the oven in this apartment that I was renting in a very idiosyncratic place on John Street, uh, where everything was frozen and cold. So I abandoned everything. Wait, so you left your oven on to warm your feet? Yeah, I mean, there was no actual heat in this funny, cheap, it was very, very inexpensive, little funny, odd place that I had. Okay, And like how much did it cost? It was like $50 a month, you know, but there was no heat. Right. And it was 
anyway, I don't need yeah, to go yeah. into just explaining how idiosyncratic it was, but it's a very odd little funny place. Um, and so, you know, do I want to join this circus, which is eventually going to wind up in San Diego? Or do I want to stay freezing, trying to be a grad student in the University of Washington, which isn't as friendly as the University of Oregon, and just getting there from where I lived was problematic in this kind of weather. Right. So I went on leave and I joined the circus. And yeah, I had an affair with Mal Kelsey, the circus manager. Is and this how the prior lady got pregnant? The white prior white horse lady? Oh, I never I never ventured to wonder about that. <laughs> um, but it, it could have been possible. Yeah. I, I won't go there. Okay. But um, anyway, so yeah, it was fun. It was easy. Actually, I had, you know, been grow, growing up in uh, Southern California and I knew how to surf. And so um, getting up on the horses, as long as you keep your knees bent, you know, it was quite easy to jump from back to back and back again. You were jumping around from horse to horse? Yeah, didn't you ever know that? Yeah, yeah four horses. And if it was a small tent, uh, then you'd just go in a circle. And they knew, the horses knew the act. I mean, they must right. have been bored, but anyway, they worked as a team and they were infallible. Hmm. And and so you just go jump back. And so the outer horse goes faster than the inner horse and so forth. And it was just a matter of balance. And then if it was a larger big top, you know, then they would go in an eight and they'd change leads, which is a little more tricky. But that was fun. Mm. It kept, you know, kept you awake. It wasn't so predictable. And then the elephants I also grew to love. Um, they were Indian elephants and they were extremely sane and very sensitive and um, I could tell stories about them uh, they were they were wonderful but that's also probably a detour um, but yeah so I was adventurous and I felt like I had nothing to lose you know like you know what else so um, but by the time I was in San Diego I I realized that this wasn't going to be in a relationship that was going to be sustainable. Right. I learned a lot and I was most impressed with the acrobats that were in the circus because they were so disciplined. The other, the kind of carny show aspect of circuses gets pretty scudsy and slimy and the right. opposite of the superficial color and right. excitement that you first perceive about circuses. Yeah. So time to leave. I was getting Yeah, paid. we've done a lot of blogs on Elephant about circuses and animal abuse and all that yeah and the uh, elephants were you know my heart was filled with compassion toward especially toward the elephants why were they treated badly they weren't in this circus it was a small one james brother circus was small mm. it was out of uh, i think it was mendocino or in that area of california and it did you know go all around the united states i just went down to the west coast but um well just in brief that the fellow that took care of the elephants remember he had these sort of gray felt like pants that were probably once wool and he was alcoholic and he would feed the elephants but he also would crash get drunk and wind up sleeping in the elephant's stall so he smelled like piss and he, his pants were all stained and covered with hay and straw uh -huh. and and the elephants were cramped when they weren't just parading around and they never stepped on him. And and we're talking, you know, like him scratching at night. 
when the elephants couldn't really see. And they never once stepped on him. I mean, I, I, wow. I thought it was like the morning miracle to see that the guy was still alive, untouched. In with two elephants in a and more world. than more than two, uh, more than and, two. and they were in wow. tight quarters. And the guy had no, I mean, when he was an alcoholic, he had no discretion of, oh. and they also did not step on his bottle and break glass. Wow, and wow. it was you know, things like that wow. were, were extraordinary. So, there's a lot of little stories within the circus story that I could talk about. That'll be in part two <laughs> if people demand it. We no, will get into the, depth. The story that 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 actually goes into the, what happened was I was getting paid $60 a month to be in the circus. And when I realized that the situation was not sustainable, I was staying in a hotel. I won't even go into all the, the different aspects. What happened? I mean, I did travel with the circus, or, uh -huh. or I caught up with the circus at one point and was on the train. But anyway. Okay. Uh, with my last $60, which was all I had to my name, I flew Aeronaves de Mexico to La Paz in Baja, California. And I arrived with a few bucks and a nickel. Literally not having family, not having brothers and sisters, not having anything to lose. I was like up for adventure. Mm. And um, Is this how you discovered Buddhism? I'll get there. Okay. But, Take um, your time. Yeah. More detail, the better. Yeah. So... Um, I could. T this could be an episode two of my six months in in Mexico, and maybe we'll just leave it at that. That could be episode two because that is really worth talking about okay. and in some detail. All right. um, yeah, if people want it, we can do it. But um, uh, so we. I kind of wanted to get. This was Lindsay's suggestion. She hosts these um, to sort of how you the time. You know, which you described very well as Buddhism was really unknown in the West. Yeah. There wasn't, you know, HBO, there wasn't Game of Thrones, there wasn't like <laughs> Google, there just a couple little books about Buddhism. So you really didn't even run across it. Maybe knew, you knew it existed in museums and stuff. Yeah. But it um, was really Trump Rinpoche's Born in Tibet and, um, uh, you know, his first books uh, that came out through. Shampala publications and the first Garuda. So going back to being back in right. Seattle. So Garuda was these the first very early sort of Buddhist magazines. And mm -hmm. I collected a bunch of them. You can find them if you look in used bookstores sometimes. And they're beautiful. So there is a couple articles here and there. Gary Snyder, Philip Whalen of the Beat Generation, they were doing some Buddhist. Zen, Zen had been around a bit. I didn't know that Kala Rinpoche had a center in. Uh, British Columbia at the time, Salt Springs Island. Um, yeah. and, and I suppose if I had somehow found out, he would have been sort of the storybook slash cartoon image of a guru, you know, old man, bald, uh, right. uh, probably 90 pounds of joy. Yeah. Brilliant. He looks like straight out of Shangri-La. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But I didn't encounter him. So how I had really got hooked was my professor friend who was teaching at San Francisco State College sent me the first Garuda. And in it was a flyer, 8 by 11 flyer, just stuck in it, said Crazy Wisdom Seminar. This is now 72. I'm back in Seattle. Oh, no, I'm back on Bainbridge Island doing my master's thesis. And you would like kayak to work and stuff, right, from Bainbridge Island to? I didn't kayak. 
to work, but I, I could kayak from Bainbridge Island over to the Olympic Peninsula. I, it was actually a canoe. It was mm. my friend. And it was like David. glass, fiberglass bottom. Fiberglass. So you could see through it. Right? It was translucent. Right. Yeah, so you could kind of tell so cool. you're approaching. What a cool it, life. It was my friend David Taylor's uh, canoe that he mm. kind of permanently lent me. Anyway, so so I thought, okay, so my master's thesis is just finished. And I had this big choice. Um, I felt it was a big choice at the time. I'd also been accepted to teach at a two-year college in Bellingham, Washington. And I thought, well, if, you know, if I did this, I would probably be a barnacle there the rest of my life. Mm. And I was actually afraid of permanence. Mm -hmm. That sounds funny, but I was sure. afraid of being stuck in a... But you were young. You wanted to bounce yeah, around. Yeah. yeah. How old were you? I must have been uh, 22, okay. 23. Right. Not so sure. you'd read Meditation yeah. in Action, which I recommend highly to everyone. Born yeah. in Tibet. If you don't right. care about Buddhism, Born in Tibet is a great adventurous story. Yeah. And it's true. And it's so, you know, like he, he writes in such a calm way. You don't realize after you finish the book that yeah. nine months yeah. in the Himalayas, People starting dying. out with... Yeah. You know, a small group, it's snowballing to 300 and only maybe 30 at best across the Brahmaputra and survive. Wow. But and they're going through six foot, nine foot snow drifts with laying their bodies down on the snow so the rest could walk through right. the Himalayas escaping from the Chinese communists. And he writes with such equanimity. Yeah. You know, that it's, it, you yeah. don't really quite get it. They were starving, eating their purses, you know, the le boiling leather so they could eat it. Um, yeah. Anyway, so so there was this crazy wisdom yeah. advertisement, and it was in Jackson Hole, Wyoming. Crazy wisdom advertisement, an ad for a, a seminar called Crazy Wisdom, taught by taught Trump by Trump Trump Shea, Shea in who Wyoming. I had read his you know early biography mm -hmm. and and who or autobiography and who uh, you know I had read these books that really spoke to me. So mm -hmm. I thought, oh. Wyoming. And that literally, this was my thought. I remember it because it was really funny, at least to myself. I thought, here I am in Bainbridge Island, Washington. So Idaho is the only thing in between. Because Van Alstyne had actually been encouraging me to go to Boulder. And I thought, oh, that's way too far away. Why here. the Boulder? Because there was this young, vital community that was just starting up there. This big Buddhist. And he was prepared. Yeah. He was, I think, uh, about to move with his kids and everything to Boulder. Uh, I think he was separating from his wife. Another story. Yeah. Okay, so uh, so I um, wind up uh, hitchhiking and then busing and then snowshoeing to Jackson Hole, Wyoming. Wow. Alone. And, alone, yeah. Wow. At 22. Yeah, 22, 23, somewhere in there. And, That's pretty and, brave. Yeah. Well, I, I didn't know anything else. Right. You know, so I didn't even think of it as brave. Um, and in so you Mexico, go to Jackson Hole, right? In Jackson Hole, Grand Tetons, which is beautiful. Yeah. It's like totally Drala land. Um, Drala is like the kind of natural blessings of, well, nature. Yeah. The Grand Tetons is like, it's like French for the great tits, right? And so. Is it? Yeah. And so it, these mountains are like perfect pyramidal snow capped mountains. And this was winter. So they were covered with snow. 
And uh, I mean, they're like a child's drawing of mountains. They were like right. these perfect mountains. Or of tits, you could say. Yes, snow-covered yeah. tits. Okay. So, um, and the, the Snow Lion Hotel was being run and owned by Buddhists at mm -hmm. the time. And it was called, yeah, so it's this little lodge in like 1970. What year is this? I think it was like, oh, this was 72. 72 in Jackson Hole, Wyoming. Snow Lion, it's a kind of uh, Tibetan Buddhist term for their lions. Snow Lion Inn in Jackson Hole. So you wind up there after hitchhiking and right. all that? and early before the whole thing starts. So I get to meet some people, and they're very friendly. And um, then I remember uh, sitting, waiting for Trungpa Rinpoche to come to give the first talk. I had no idea really what he would So how much like. did the seminar cost? And how, how did oh, all that it was so expensive. Yeah. I don't remember, but it was... But so you arrive at this inn, there's a whole bunch of oh, weird yeah. Buddhist hippie types? What's going on? Yeah, there were hippie types. There were um, lots of people my age that had, you know, just graduated or uh, dropped out of college. And um, it was very youthful. Mm -hmm. And from everywhere, from East Coast, West Coast, everywhere, people come... A lot greater distances than I had. They, Were there a hundred people or two hundred or fifty or what? There must have been um, somewhere, but I, I'm bad at right, sure. Size, but there was at least sixty, and there was probably a hundred. Okay, uh, could have been more. Right. So, so I arrived. We're waiting for the first talk. And this uh, seminar, just so people know, uh, in case you're tuning out, is now in a book called Crazy Wisdom. Exactly. So you can read it right, right. now. All right. So. Uh, Trump Rinpoche comes limping in with a huge Cheshire cat smile mm -hmm. and uh, his hair isn't long but it's it's kind of uh, he looks like a Chicano to me and he has a cowboy shirt uh, right and he, I think he was wearing white sneakers and he had um, suspenders and uh, really a warm uh, presence that was like a magnet for all of us. We were all, like when he walked in, even though he walked in with a limp, like... Because he was half paralyzed, basically. Yeah, yeah, but he was so present and so vital, it was magnetic. He and was you were expecting some sort of Kalu Rimshi, yeah. some sort of Tibetan guru type, right? I mean... And he walks in in his cowboy outfit, kind of... Chicano bartender. Right. You know, and he takes his seat, and... Uh, he begins talking about Padmasambhava, which is what the seminar was about. It was supposed to be about the eight aspects of Padmasambhava and how crazy wisdom was the sort of victorious mode that Padmasambhava had for being able to plant the Buddha Dharma from India into Tibet. Mm -hmm. And we'll and skip all that. Yeah. In my, in my, um, uh, kind of college conceptual mind, I couldn't keep track of, I don't think he even covered eight aspects. He, he seemed kind of all over in the map, and, 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 but exactly present now. He wasn't talking about a historical character, and <laughs> there was no linear time organizing what he was saying. But he was talking about principles of what it is to be enlightened and awake and to um, uh, now I would say then I would know these terms to how to join relative and absolute truth 
So it wasn't academic, but it was just straight up Buddhist straight up, teachings about how to live life and be present. And straight up immediate and present. And yeah. and uh, he was talking to you now. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure everyone felt that they were they were being spoken to directly mm-hmm. in the audience. And he was very generous with the questions. And what I noticed about the questions was the people were very intelligent they knew a lot more than i did there would be questions about the boomies and i didn't know what the boomies were the different levels of the bodhisattva path and so i felt like a complete know nothing newbie mm-hmm. and, and um, you were you were a newbie I was, to yeah. the scene yeah. yeah and um toward the end of the seminar i got the courage because he was very generous and so available Okay. that you could go up after every talk and ask him a one-on-one question. Why is that so generous and available? Because I mean, of, doesn't everyone do that? No, because so many teachers um, have much more of a control over the questions that they want to respond to, and when the yeah. when the talk is over with, they leave. Oh, but like, he just like continued to like hang President out. Like President Trump. So I don't got time for questions. They're, yeah. you know, it's like, talking dinosaurs and human beings when you make that analogy. Right. But so yeah. uh, with, with Trump Rinpoche, you know, I waited in line. And I, I remember there was a woman named Anne who was just kind of hanging out, sitting by his side, an older woman. And uh, um, I asked him, so you keep referring to this term Tantra, but I, I don't, I don't understand what that is. I can't find it in any of my Edward Kanza books. Mm-hmm. So one of the other things that I had done, just a little flashback back to Seattle, was I tried auditing Edward Kanza, a British Mahayana Buddhist teacher. I tried auditing some of his classes, and I had some of his books. And they were very British, and uh, sort of like an intellectual approach to the Buddha Dharma, very stiff. I'm sure helpful to some people, but... There was no comparison to Rangpa Rinpoche, who was like talking to you directly, and it was lively and right. and full of humor, totally right. wakeful and not at all conceptual. This is a little off topic, but there's this wonderful scene in the beginning of Affair to Remember with Cary Grant, Deborah Kerr, and Carr, Carr um, where they go through like how five different nationalities or countries, Italian, French, whatever, uh, British, are reporting on the same story <laughs> and the British one is so dry and serious and kind of distant. Oh, they've fallen in love. She's apparently a coal baron. Hmm. Well, you know, <laughs> yeah. Anyway. Yeah. He was not at all like an Olympian God looking down on poor mortals. You know, right. he was just right with you. Trunk Rimshay. Trunk Rimshay. Yeah. And so at first he said, if I told you, sweetheart, you wouldn't understand. And I felt, you know, completely, um, I don't know, I I just sunk inside myself. Because you'd got up the courage, you're a newbie, you're yeah. 22, you'd like hitchhiked there, snowshoed there. Where did you get snowshoes from? I That's had crazy. snowshoes on Baybridge Island. As well. So, and then you get there, you ask, you go up to the big guy, you ask a question, and he says, you wouldn't understand if I told yeah. you. Yeah, but he, had, he was smiling. Uh-huh. And I was immobilized. I had so like kind of frozen to this on the spot. So um, uh, he proceeded to tell me. Because he saw, oh, you're disappointed. So I'll tell you. 
was still there. And, I, and in in kind of collapsing inside myself, or I don't know how to explain it, but in kind right. of being sure. so open. Oh, sorry, we had a little pause there. Okay, because you were so open. The, yeah. the, the glimmer of possibility that I might possibly understand. So he proceeded to talk about the continuity of awareness and you, the tantric word, which means thread or continuity, and so forth and so on. And he was Tantra right. Tantra means thread, right. And I basically, he was right. I did not understand what, right over my head. But the delightful thing was that he was smiling and he was welcoming and he was, you know, inviting me to go to Boulder. And I he should invited check, you to move yeah, to Boulder. Yeah, I should. Well, at first he said, you should check out Boulder. Mm -hmm. He used our language. He was like, you know, totally user friendly. He was like so warm. And I, I had been you know, clearly very ornery and independent after my mom died and my stepfather shortly thereafter and then losing everything. And, um, but I took his invitation and just suggestion as command. I felt like, okay, I have to do this. So I hitchhiked, uh, uh, I didn't hitchhike, I um, got a ride, uh, and I will be able to remember his name, his, his girlfriend's name was also Linda. Um, he's a, a California golfer and was close to the region. Can't remember his name. Oh, right Joseph off. Parent. Yeah, Joseph Parent. Yeah, bingo. Awesome I got a ride guy. with him, and his car had one broken window, and it was winter, and I was in the back seat. And how and so old was Joseph then? Oh, he's probably my same age. Wow, that's wild. Yeah, okay. we wound Sorry. up playing some tennis together. So. Oh, cool. But anyway, this cold winter air is blowing in the back. Because his windshield, his, his window is broken? One of his windows was broken, cracked, something. I can't remember the whole thing. Anyway, so I, I checked out Boulder. I loved it. The community was also very welcoming. One of the kindest people to me that I met right off was David Rome. Um, you know, I was smitten by his kindness and his intelligence. David Rome. Right. He, who was soon to become Trump Rinpoche's secretary, but at, at the at the moment it was Henry Schaefer and his funny little dog. Yeah, I did a couple of interviews with David uh, last year. He's a wonderful, wonderful Buddhist teacher, very modest Treasure. and very powerful at the same yeah. time. And and uh, I remember making friends with him and uh, hanging out a little bit, um, checking out his library. He was he was uh, uh, fantastic chess player and i remember some of the books in his uh, room were like pawn power and things like that Who, anyway, david david, uh -huh. david Rome. anyway um i love i still to this day love david Rome. uh anyway he volunteered to take me to the airport so that i could fly back to uh bainbridge island eventually and pack up everything and drive all the way back in my 54 plymouth uh to Boulder, Colorado. Your 54 Plymouth is this cute little red car, right? Well, it became red in, in uh, Boulder. Oh. I had it painted, but it was... Uh, and you had a name for it? Bessie Belvedere. Bessie. Because uh, I'd found it in a sheep pasture, and um, a friend that I'd um, wow. uh, kind of rescued from his gooey ducking career, you're out in a boat and you dive down for these clams, they're called gooey ducks. Oh. Anyway, the, his engine had shut off and there wasn't enough gasoline in his tank to keep his uh, oxygen happening. And I was canoeing around and he waved to me and I went over to see what was happening. He said, I need gas, you know, can you? So I paddled fast 
got into this car that was unpredictable and starting and went to the gas station off the island across the bridge, came back, got in the canoe with the gas tank. Oh, my God. Rescued him because I saved my life for my birthday. He he got me six new spark plugs. It's <laughs> <laughs> a great pullout quote. Yeah. Anyway. Oh, your life is so much more interesting than mine. Well, it was the time. Yeah. You know, it was also the time. And I think I was in a funny way blessed. I can tell you about my crazy year. I worked on my laptop in cafes and then I bikes <laughs> around and I ate and I talked a lot with people at the farmer's market and various restaurants. And then I watched Netflix sometimes and uh, sat a in a life. hot tub and climbed. And then I got injured surfing and that was, and uh, I dated some and didn't date other times. And, this is still a good life. It's a good life, but your life is like out of some amazing book. <laughs> anyway, no one would buy the book. No one would buy life. your book. Oh, yeah. no one probably buy my book either. I think people would buy your book. Okay. So anyway, so uh, where was I? You were after saving. Well, the guy. spark plug, right? But um, you. So were I was in Belvedere. Bessie Belvedere. You were driving. Yeah. Actually, that was a story too, because it's still winter, and I'd really packed up everything, including my cat. And we drove in this 54 Plymouth uh, with no heat. Uh, and when we hit Wyoming, there was a blizzard. And uh, I didn't want to pull off the road because I think the whole car would have frozen. I had a blanket. My cat was on my lap as I was driving. And I was following this blue light that kept circling around and around of this snowplow. And we were driving it. Your cat was in your lap. You're yeah. driving your little 55 Plymouth yeah. in a blizzard where you can't, it's total whiteout. Yeah. And you, all you have is this the blue, blue light. light. Yeah. All the way to Cheyenne. Wow. And then from Cheyenne, it was still bad weather. But you and what would have happened if you didn't have that blue light? I probably would have just frozen. Just the car, right. me, the cat. The cat would have been fine. Cats always survive. Yeah. Okay. Cat would have been alive. Yeah. <laughs> Pissed off, but alive. Yeah. But anyway. Yeah, she was Mescalita. Mescalita, yeah. yeah. So that was my childhood, not mine, but your cat. But when I was a kid, Mescalita, and my cat was Boo. And Mescalita, like, lived for a long time, 18 right? years. 18. Yeah. Yeah, so, anyways. Why was she called Mescalita? What is that? Uh, because when I was in Berkeley, which is an episode I haven't talked about, um, I uh, discovered my favorite detour, which was Mescaline and Peyote. Mm-hmm. And I was reading the San Juan books. And you were just like mescaline. You'd be sitting up on the top of, where was this? San well, Francisco. And yeah. just watch all the like nature yeah. day and night happen or something. It was my first, I really loved it. I It was, uh, you know, I could start out somewhere indoors. And it was like my intelligence would go to my feet. And I'd have to go someplace. And I would go places that I'd never been before. Your intelligence in would nature. go to your feet? Yeah, because I had to move and I had to go to someplace wild or natural. Uh, and and uh, so the place you're describing was when I went to Land's End, which is, I think it's like a golf course. But anyways, the, the very end of... It was a golf course then? Uh, what I remember was there was lawns and trees. And I, I sat against the bank of a high... Uh, back of a... My back was against a high stump. Mm-hmm that was overlooking the Golden Gate Bridge. So there was the bay and there was the ocean and you could see Sausalito and the lights and it was evening. And I sat and I watched the car lights across the bridge and 
and Sausalito lights and boats going across into the ocean. And then the sun came. Mm. And I didn't realize that I'd sat there all night. Mm. It was like just sitting with my back against this tree. It's what's called the fourth moment. Not present, not past, not future, for sure. Beyond just momentariness, full stop. And Who calls it fourth moment? It's in the Buddha Dharma. Oh, Buddhist thing. So it, it was a wonderful, profound experience, but because I had no training, um, then when I realized it was morning and present thoughts began to, to flicker in and I was no longer in that state, uh, and I began to walk back to where I was staying in San Francisco, and I'd see the newspapers that talk about the Vietnam War. Mm. The whole relative reality came crashing in. But that's true too, right? Yeah. Nothing's wrong with that. Yeah. It's good to be aware of what's but, going on. But there's also the possibility of carrying that fourth moment into the chaotic world. Yeah. Um, you know, and seeing the waves of turbulence as empty. Um, you still notice the waves and still deal with the waves, but uh, you yourself don't necessarily have to contribute to the wave-like quality of the waves, right. the, the reactions. But this is a, actually an important discussion. A lot of people, when they first get into Buddhism, are like, oh, reality is empty, so then they get nihilistic and they don't actually contribute to enlightened society. Yeah, that's they a don't huge care, error. They don't protest. They don't... Yeah. Because uh, true, yeah. truly experiencing emptiness yeah. means that there's no barrier or boundary between you allow compassion to just flow. Yeah, so caring about equal rights, for oh, example, comes out of emptiness. Absolutely. You realize you're me there's and no I'm you. There's no separation between you and others, so compassion can just flow. Exactly right. Yeah, yeah. It, nihilism is a huge mistake. And if, you, if one thinks that the Buddha Dharma is about emptiness in a nihilistic state, it'd be better not to even venture into the Buddha Dharma, you know, because that's, that's a huge mistake. Um, that's like some mom version of trash talk in case you didn't notice. <laughs> if you think, if you think nihilism is part of Buddhism, you shouldn't even get into Buddhism. Get out. <laughs> um, but it's a serious thing because you see a lot of that on Facebook right now. A lot of people, a lot of um, liberal people, um, and I'm sure conservatives on the other end during the Obama years say, oh, none of it matters. It's all bullshit. Everyone's corrupt. Don't vote for anyone. Vote for someone who's going to lose them. You know, vote for some idealistic thing. Um, and idealism is great. But, you know, they're basically saying to hell with everything. It's hopeless. Um, and that's kind of st stupid, right? I mean, it matters. Like the other day, we were at Farmer's Market here in Halifax, and we were trying to, like, not uh, have plastic to-go stuff for our lunch. And while that may seem stupid to care about, you know, that plastic is going to be around when my grandchildren have grandchildren, and it'll look pretty much the same. And if it's recycled, that's a pretty toxic process. And, you know, we wonder where cancer comes from. There's all these added chemicals to plastic to make it. We were trying to use wood chopsticks instead of plastic silverware and right, which is still imperfect no we one's you talking, don't need to be perfect we were talking to the the peoples that were serving us this good food and right. communicating to yeah, them yeah it's like vegan organic local but it's like plastic 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 
It's like, oh, I guess you don't care about the environment when it comes to packaging. And anyway, after, it's okay to care. And so after all of that, they still gave you salad dressing in a plastic yeah. container, even though we got the more ecologically friendly container. And well, even though a, we're eating salad, like just put the salad dressing on the salad, or if you don't know if we want it, and then ask. Ask. Yeah. Literally, I'm right here. But what was worse was um, that when we then we went upstairs for the view of the beautiful harbor, and when we were finished with our lunch, um, like they have everywhere in Halifax, they have the segregated garbage and trash versus the recycling and the paper and the. So context, which my mom has explained, and we've talked about this a few times. We're in this huge farmer's market with a green roof, local food right on the harbor. Rainwater to flush the toilets. Rainwater to flush the toilets. <laughs> they separate compost, trash, recycling, paper. There's four different bins. That's right. So I'm going to put my compost and recycling in two different bins, and the janitor lady was very nice. Says, no, 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 just give them to me. And she has this huge bin, and I, I'm like, no, no, I'm separating them because I don't want to put them in some huge bin. She's like, oh, no, 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 we don't actually separate them. We take all four bins. We put them all into the landfill. It was so disappointing. I'm still I'm still really, really disappointed, and I want to see if um, Richard Peisinger maybe could do something about it because he was influential in, in making the building as eco-friendly as it is. And in her defense, she was saying, well, people just don't follow the instructions. They put dirty diapers in the recycling. They put this and that. So one way we can all contribute to that is, like, actually recycle, recycling stuff. You know, like when you're at Chipotle, you can put your metal tinfoil in the recycling. Take you the time. You can put your little paper stuff in the compostable, you know. Anyway, so that, was, that was sad. Anyway, oh, I don't much. need to, I really don't need to go on the, the story of my life. But in terms of the Buddha Dharma, I, I would like to say that those early years were so vibrant and um, so welcoming and inclusive and Trump Ripche, if you lived in Boulder, so it was definitely the right move to make. Mm. If you lived in Boulder in the early 70s, um, and you were, even if you weren't a community member, he was, and he, and if he also at the same time was in Boulder, because um, he traveled a lot, he would give free Friday night talks. Mm. And again, so accessible and so fun, and the whole community came together. They were packed, and yeah. people could ask questions, and he would stay. And after, you could line up and ask a one-on-one -on -one question. And if that didn't do the trick for you, you could have an interview with him. You'd see Henry or then later um, David, David Rome. And to me, this isn't about Trunk Rimsha at all. I think to him it wasn't about him. Yeah. What's so inspiring now is, like, I'm in Boulder, and there's tons of amazing people in Boulder now. But there's no – and tons of people want to live truthful, helpful lives – there's no way to do that other than just kind of going to parties and going to farmer's market and whatever, barbecues and life, you know. But there's no – at that time, everyone was coming together Friday, Saturday, Sunday, every single day yeah. and doing something like <laughs> meditation and community and trying to make the world a better place. And that's so rare. And the, you found that. The community really was vibrant. And we all tended to get married around the same time. And we all tended to have children around the same time. So Trunk Rinpoche was inspirational in, in developing Alia Preschool and then Vidya School. Yeah, where and I went. At, right, where I taught and at Naropa University. Right. And I taught also. And um, 
I mean, he truly created enlightened society. He truly created community, which is enlightened society. And uh, for example, when when uh, our kids like you were like toddlers, um, we all wanted to be able to meditate. So there would be Nintun childcare, and we Nintun was the day long meditation. Right. We'd we'd rent a space, and um, we would take turns. We were like on a rota of of uh, manning the childcare situation, and then others could sit. And then, right. you know, the next time it would be our turn to go sit. And then it developed into potluck um, lunches, mm. you know, and things. And, and if you're not a parent, child, child care so that you can do something crucial for yourself and for your life is a, a rare and vital thing. And he was at the same time uh, building up this community of young people. So mm -hmm. the children became their own generational community. And some started out together at Alia. Uh, Waylon started out in uh, Vidya school. And those, those kids, the Dharma brats, are, are a strong community and friendship to this day. You've yeah. got mutual history. There's a whole bunch of them right here in Halifax. Yeah. yeah. And so we were called the Dharma brats, kind of after army brats, but also after Dharma bums. Uh, Kerouac's wonderful book that I recommend everyone read. And we um, have a cool blog on that or two on Elephant. Since we promised to talk about it, uh, maybe what was it like to raise, you know, to be a, um, to raise a kid on your own? And then, uh, yeah, maybe just something on that. Um, well, I did marry, it was a photo finish, but yeah. I, I did marry. Yeah. And yeah. Um, you got married on what date? On, uh, was the 15th of July, and Waylon was born um, the morning after. I think it's something like 3.33 in the morning. Uh, and um, So I was born on July 16th. He got married on July 15th. Yeah. So that redefines the shotgun wedding, right? Yes, yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I was married by Trump Rinpoche. Right. Um, he was the preceptor. In, in, his, in his office, and um, some of our mutual friends were, were present. And his office is now the office of David Balduk in the Boulder uh, bookstore. I believe so. Yeah. Um, uh, and it was very bumpy marriage, so I don't need to go into that. Um, and I stayed in it probably too long. Six years was too long. Um, yeah, bumpy is definitely like the censored word for describing that marriage. So it was not a great marriage. No. But I, it was great for me in the outset in that I got to be born. Yes, and I love being a mom. And if I had married the right uh, person, I probably would have had uh, many more children. Right. But Yeah, and I always wanted, I remember so many birthdays, it was probably so cruel in retrospect, but at the time I just, you would ask what I wanted for my birthday and I would always say, I want a, I want a sister or brother. <laughs> yeah, well. Yeah. Um, your your father was also a dependent at the time. I was putting him through um, Metro State right. and then somewhat the University of Colorado. And, yeah. And then he taught him how to drive he, and stuff. Well, I actually failed to teach him how to drive because he couldn't learn the stick shift. But Jimmy Colosi, a mutual friend, taught him taught him to drive. And then his mm. first job was as a cab driver. Right. Um, and uh, we we uh, 
did go to the 76th seminary together, all three of us. That was your first seminary. Seminaries were these big Buddhist, like three month colleges, basically, right. where you practiced meditation, you studied Buddha Dharma, and then you, what was the other part? Celebrated? <laughs> it was sort of those three things. Yeah, you, you, you oh, yeah, it was practice, and practice, study, study but practice, during study, the practice. study part, there would be banquets and celebrations, and they were amazing. Yeah. I grew up with like 8,000 banquets and very dignified and fun parties. Yeah. Really amazing. Yeah, wonderful. Yeah. yeah. And um, the day after seminary, uh, I had to hustle, and uh, you were two years old, and um, find the first job I could get. And I was a janitor at uh, Crossroads Shopping Center. Oh, I, yeah, I, I knew that. I, yeah, in order to pay the bills. Wow. And, um, you know, so it went, you know. Wow. And I, I would often have... You cleaned the whole shopping center or just like a couple stores? Vacuumed several stores, yeah, wow. more than two. And when I was two? When you were two. It was the wow. first job that I could get. I literally, I needed money like now, yesterday, right. to pay bills. And I wound up always having multiple jobs until... Um, I was able to separate and then divorce and um, put the money that I had toward uh, getting the Colorado certificate. I already had a, a MA, but I went back to school to get the Colorado teaching certificate so I could teach. Then I taught at an honors school uh, out on um, that highway. Um, Alexander Dawson. Yeah, when I was 356, something like that, out there and, you know, sort of. Yeah. Longmont area, yeah. somewhere around there. And then I taught at Vidya for five years. Which is the Buddhist inspired school. And um, it, I would also have to teach in the uh, uh, summer. And often I would, teaching summer school, I would earn more in three months than I did at Vidya teaching for, for nine months. But it was worth it. I remember you telling some story about you're working so hard. I think you're driving back from Alexander oh, Dawson. Yeah. You want to tell that story and then yeah. we'll, we'll wrap up with that. Um, so yeah, being a single mom and having multiple jobs was tough. And uh, this one day I was driving, it was long hours at Alexander Dawson because uh, this gifted and talented school was a boarding school. So it wasn't just nine to three, it was long hours. The start and finish was longer dates. And so it must have been about five o'clock or something. And I was following this car. And then the car turned and I turned. And I started following this car until I realized, hey, I'm not getting home. I'm following this car. I'm just so sleepy and tired that I was like on some kind of autopilot, barely You're just there. out of it, yeah. Yeah. So that was. And there was some other little story I remember where you like were coming to an intersection. Do you remember that? Not right you now. told me once you were so wiped out from working one day and you were like coming to an intersection and it was part of you was just like, I'm just going to let the car go and like die basically. And, and in that moment you were like, I'm a, I'm a mom, I'm a parent. I got to, yeah. you know, take care of Might my kids. Mixing a couple stories, but I think, you know, that's. No, I remember that part super clearly. Okay. Um, so either you're lying to me <laughs> or uh, I've made up the whole thing. And I, I possibly could have forgotten. I'm kidding. Uh, anyway, you've been wonderfully generous with your time. Hopefully people have enjoyed. And hopefully um, it's not too boring. I'm sorry to talk about myself so much. Yeah, well, it was more personal. I think we we're going to talk more generally, but I think it was, at least for myself, a real, you know, the like you were teaching writing last night in our Elephant Academy, elephantjournal.com slash academy, and you were saying be... What was it? Specific, not general. 
not yes. cliche. That's right. Be specific. So I think it's always more interesting to hear the actual kind of details of the story. Um, you know, other than just saying, oh, well, I discovered Buddhism and being an only, it was you know, wonderful. raising an only child was difficult, had its difficult moments, but was incredibly <laughs> fulfilling. It's like, you know, yeah, just bored. Um, so thank you. Yeah, I appreciate it. You. Mommy, Fun. I want to thank our sponsor, Sweetleaf, which is a natural stevia, uh, wonderful, or stevia as a lot of people call it, natural alternative to sugar. Uh, this is a serious thing, Sugar. This is an independent, mindful, mission-based company, uh, not just trying to rip people off. And sugar is a major, added sugars are a major, major problem in the West with diabetes, with obesity crisis, uh, with heart disease, with shortening people's lifespans. And um, stevia is a good alternative for baking, for your coffee, for whatever. So, Sweet Leaf, my mother brought to you by Sweet Leaf. Uh, any final words? You want to lead us out with a bow? Yes. All right. So if anyone wants to join a little Buddhist bow, my mom will give a brief instruction. Okay. Okay. Well, I'll probably just do what I did last night. Okay. But give a little instruction so some people are listening. Yeah. So your best posture. Your head is like the heaven aspect of your body. And then yield. Surrender, bow, connecting heaven with earth, and then raise in mutual respect to each other. And thank you. And now we will meditate briefly for about an hour or two. <laughs> okay. Thank you so Cheers. much, everyone. Thank you, Mommy. Yeah. Aww. Smooches. Thanks for listening to Self Help is Bad for You. New episode next week. Go to elephantjournal.com slash podcast to subscribe.